0: You're listening to Latin Experts, a podcast of Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Latin Experts features the voices of faculty, staff, and students, as well as friends and alumni of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies, the Latino Research Institute, and the Center for Mexican American Studies. Join us for this episode of Latin Experts.
1: Welcome back. We're on UT campus. This is fantastic. This is Latin Experts. I'm your host for today, Dr. Rachel Gonzalez-Martin, and I'm very excited because my guest today, who I will refer to by many names, I'm sure, during the course of this interview, is Dr. Domino Perez, full professor of English here at the University of Texas. We're celebrating always, all month, all year. (laughs) Uh, We are here. Well, let's just say, Domino, how you doing? How's it going?
0: I'm okay. It's uh, just getting used to hearing the full professor and then my name following. That's them. right.
1: I, I hope you get new cards, like faculty cards. I kept telling myself after tenure I would get new ones, and I still haven't. But I just tell people like, no, I'm tenured. Don't look at the old cards. Those are gone. Those are that's the past. I feel like the full professor ones should be like very like Victorian elaborate, nice. like with little gold edging. I think. As a full professor, that's something you should consider fighting for these days. I appreciate that, but I I think you
0: also realize that until I actually see it in print, like I have the paper confirmation, Uh it's still in the realm of the theoretical. (sighs)
1: Such a professor. Always a professor. A lifetime of professoring. But I totally agree with you. It's all up in the air until it's official. Today, luckily enough, something that is absolutely real and in the world is your new book called Fatherhood in the Borderlands, A Daughter's Slow Approach. And it came out just at the end of last year with the University of Texas Press. So big congratulations because I've always been a fangirl of your first book. There was a woman, which was a cultural studies Literary, popular culture, menagerie, really following the life of the legend of La Gorona internationally, transnationally, right, in these different creative venues. And as an undergraduate, I didn't have any resource like that. There was really no book in the area of folklore. I mean, I'm a folklorist for those who haven't heard these podcasts before. I'm a folklorist, so I'm always trolling for things to replicate scholars that have been working and it wasn't until I found your book and as you've heard the story many times when I was asked to review your book when I was in graduate school that I was like oh my god I could have gone to Texas to study and not still not having a good sense of the divide between ethnographic work and literary criticism and pop culture studies but that first book really brought it together and it really changed what I thought I could do with my graduate degree, with my research. Now it's being recorded that I'm just giving you that credit, that I love it. And then you hired me a few years, how many years later?
0: Without knowing that with, review existed in the world. Yes,
1: but it did, and this is what's good. We're connecting the we're connecting all the dots.
0: I do have to say that I think I'm going to steal the word menagerie. Fantastic. I, as an organizational idea. That's something I think we're going to get to. I like it better than, in some ways, archive. Archive connotes... Certain values, certain ideas, but menagerie, I like the chaotic quality of it.
1: To me, when I think of menageries, and I'm thinking about, this is terrible. I'm not—I wasn't a good student of English, but it was that play—it was The Glass Menagerie, wasn't it? (laughs) Is that—I forget who— You are correct. Yes. Thinking about the idea of a pretty cabinet where we amass all these things— that there's little figurines, right? But that they're beautiful to us.
0: And they're organized in a way that makes sense to, to us. us.
1: Exactly. And that's to me, that's a big thing. my
0: book. So thank you. This has been really helpful. Have a good <laughs> afternoon.
1: But now we have to give the people some more meat in terms of this book. So one... In all seriousness, right? I wouldn't have tenure without you. I'm an associate professor of Latino studies here at UT, and so I am super excited to be able to see my friend and colleague and mentor on this other side, this other book, which I feel weirdly happy that like I've been around to see produce. Because let's be honest, I got to La Yurana after the fact. I was a uh, footnote, me like, but this, I was like, this I can we can talk about from its very inception. So start us off. Like, what made you want to talk about? Brown fathers?
0: Yeah, that's the question that I get most often. And it it has to do, it has everything to do with my own father and not seeing men like my father or the men in my family being represented anywhere. Not in film, not in literature, not television, not pop culture. I think in the popular culture, Imaginary, there is or there are very specific ways to be brown fathers. You're either absent or you're angry or you do physical labor, manual labor, the house looks a certain way, the person rules the house in a certain way. And certainly there are families that do have some correlation to some of those representations. And so I'm in no way eager to erase that experience but what I'm trying what I wanted to do was I wanted to broaden the representational experience. And my father was a <clears throat> ex-military,
1: he was in the Marines. He, I feel like that tells us worlds about just in general a culture of your household that would have been different from other folks.
0: Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> we were like a little platoon. <laughs> That's how things Function. That is how things function. There was a right way to do things and there was an incorrect way to do things.
1: It's funny how those can overlay on dad's way of doing right. things and everyone else's.
0: But I will say this there was an incorrect way of doing it. And if you were doing it incorrectly, it was also a time to intervene and teach the right way oh, to do okay. things. So it wasn't just you're not doing this correctly here's some sort of punishment or whatever the case may be. It's, no, you're doing this incorrectly. This is the correct way to do it.
1: Pause for a second and we'll come back to this. But give us a little bit about your background because I don't feel impertinent asking this because your book is actually quite personal as much as it is an academic text for teaching at the undergraduate, graduate level, right? You could, any sort of thoughtful scholar of media studies, cultural studies, popular culture could use your text. But talk to us a little bit about growing up. Yeah, so I'm originally from Houston, Texas.
0: My brother and I initially grew up in what we would have called a barrio, but I don't think our neighbors would have called it. We grew <laughs> up in a little barrio called Cottage Grove, which was a multi-ethnic community. And it was a multi-ethnic community that sprung up around a steel mill and a railroad. And it was called Cottage Grove because the houses were the cottages where the laborers were right. ensconced. And around those cottages, additional houses sprung up. But it was a really multi-ethnic neighborhood in the sense that we had Polish families, Czech families, Chinese families, Mexican-American families. Interestingly, we did not have black families. Interesting. But I grew up in this multi-ethnic environment. And I just thought that's the way that things were. You had pierogies across the street and you had everybody's everybody's, – belief systems were commingling. Um, I just thought that's the way that the world was. And it wasn't until we moved out of the Cottage Grove into the suburbs of Houston that I really began to feel that sense of isolation. Because when we lived in Cottage Grove, my grandparents, both sets of grandparents lived there. Oh wow! My great aunt lived down the street. Another Thea lived a couple of houses over. You couldn't throw a stone in that neighborhood and not hit somebody's house to whom I was related. Yeah. And so there were constantly people coming and going and go down the t- go down to your tia's house get this come back and we ran around at a really young age really unsupervised because everybody was looking out for everybody sure. else. Right. It was a very yeah. tight knit community even in its conflicts. This is our business you can stay out, out of it <laughs> in the neighborhood neighborhood right, business. Right, right. And there was a what was fondly and derisively identified or called a, a beer joint where all the <laughs> men would go after work sure go down and get your deal from the beer joint children walking
1: <laughs> <laughs> not 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 quite so popular now but at a time no. it was you're known oh yeah you're blah blah blahs but niece. i bring the,
0: yeah but i bring that up because even within that community there were designated spaces of gender and there were designated places of ethnicity and culture And yet it was still one.
1: Absolutely. So thinking about these experiences and watching things change, you said, as you've moved from area to area, and it sounds like moving from Cottage Grove to the suburbs of Houston was also less family around. It was just a different dynamic. Where was your interest? Your text, your book talks a lot about representations, TV, film, right? Yeah. So
0: to afford that middle class life, and we were very much middle class. My father... Was an engineer. My mother was a bank teller.
1: Although she a very
0: invisible narrative, right? The middle class Mexican. Absolutely. But this is a my mother had a high school education. My father had a high school education, but this was also back in the time when you could apprentice, and so he started off as an apprentice to a an electrician. Mm-hmm. So really learning how things work and learning schematics and things, wiring from the ground up, like physically doing it and then conceptualizing it in his mind. And then he apprenticed as an electrical engineer and then became one in his own right and then became an engineer in charge of offshore drilling technologies. Wow. So all without a degree. It's a very different way of doing things. absolutely. But to move to the suburbs of Houston, to be where we were, meant both parents had to work. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. my brother and I, in the absence of family close by, had to take care of ourselves. And, and I say that without—I there's, I was fine. Today, Child Protective Services <laughs> would be called, and it's a right. different cultural moment, but— I was a latchkey
1: kid, but not tragically. So for our audience who might be fairly young as undergraduates, what is a latchkey kid?
0: A latchkey kid, were we were an army, as I described <laughs> them in the book. We were yeah. an army of children who every day would take ourselves to school, get up, fix our breakfast, get our stuff together, take ourselves to school, and repeat the process and lock ourselves in our houses until our parents, guardians, whomever, came home. Sometimes that was that evening. Sometimes it was a couple of days. But it the idea, vary. but the yeah. idea is that we were all um, carrying around keys sewn into hidden pockets on sort of grimy yarn necklaces, right. whatever. That when we closed the latch, we'd yeah. open the latch to let ourselves out in the
1: morning and close it when we got home, and there we would stay. So it was a lot of. Early independence, a lot as, as a child slash young adult. A lot of early
0: independence, but not without safety. If I didn't make the first phone call time, we got to
1: call at work
0: <laughs> at three thirty. My mom would call at three thirty, so that was enough time for me to you know mess about a little bit yeah. on the way home because I got out at three, right? And it took probably about fifteen minutes to walk from the elementary school, and if I wanted to play a little bit. I had better do it in that 15 minutes, but then I had to be <laughs> home to make that 3.30 phone call. Sure. Then there was another phone call at 4 o'clock, and then there was another phone call, usually around 4.30, which was instructions on how to cook dinner.
1: Because she would be coming home soonish to start things <laughs> get going. Every,
0: get everything ready Preparing. to go. Yeah. Um, and then she didn't, the bank where she worked wasn't too far away, but she would be home by 5.15, and my father would be home shortly after that, and dinner would be on the table.
1: It magically happened because there was a whole whole, uh, platoon
0: behind you. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it was a lot of time alone. My brother is older than I am by more than a few years. And so it was me and whatever was on the TV after school. Summers were the same way because we had to spend so much time or I had to spend so much time. My brother was older and he was he was my brother, so he was male. He could go out and he do He had things. different freedoms. Right, he absolutely. Yes. He had different freedoms. Books and movies. Those were my
1: friends. Favorite book, favorite movie? Currently. I know that's a cruel question to ask yeah. anyone who reads and watches as much as you do.
0: Yeah, I think for me and anyone who reads the book, my book will know that The Empire Strikes Back will always have a special place for me. But I think my favorite movie has to be Ridley Scott's Blade Runner for the way that it just influenced so many things visually, I can watch that movie over and over again and still see something different about it. Yeah. And that's not even really getting into or engaging with the narrative of enslaved labor and doing undesirable work and looking at the way that the main corporation in the film the tyrell corporation is housed in what looks like the pyramid of the sun it's right. just there's, a lot going there's on. so much going on if you haven't seen
1: that movie you should definitely <laughs> check it out kids um, and adults yes um, but, tell us a little bit about how that connects cuz you know you have the films that you love the empire strikes back thinking about these cultural representations from a certain moment that linger like How do those make it into the book? What are these fathers that we're able to read about through your text? What's going on that makes them remarkable in the way that you're using them? Yeah, so my father put on a tie to go to
0: work Hmm. every single day. I'm estranged from my father, but I can give him his flowers, that's for sure. That man could tie a double Windsor like nobody's (laughs) business. That thing was impeccable. But that's, that's military training, right? You do things the right way, and you, there's a way to do it, and you do yes. it correctly. and
1: If you're going to bother to do it. If you're going
0: to bother to do it, you do it correctly. right? And my uncles were also business owners. They were the owners of what was called Ono Construction in Ortiz, wow. and they were one of the first Mexican-American-owned construction companies to get a contract from the city of Houston. Wow. And so— These were very different experiences than what I was seeing. Nobody in the family was a criminal like we saw on TV. (laughs) Nobody was a drug dealer. Nobody was a pachuco, which didn't mean that my mom didn't hang with them when she was in high school because there's a – whole story about one of her really good friends called his nickname was killer that we'll have to save for another day sure. but like he was called killer because he was a lady killer and he always <laughs> dressed so well that like
1: for sure he
0: could slay he could slay I love yeah it. so the creases in his pants were no joke uh, <laughs> but even that even that kind of experience was you couldn't see that anywhere and I certainly didn't see it anywhere and I certainly didn't see it in the um the books and the movies that I consumed voraciously. Now, did I realize that? No, I don't think because I was... Books and film were an immersive and they continue to be an immersive experience for me. And it wasn't until I learned to think critically about them that I I started to notice those absences and what those absences mean. And so part of that idea of where are these fathers, what are the fathers that were given outside of these kinds of familiar narratives. And they are very few, very few and far in between. And so I was interested in looking at what kind of power they did have socially, culturally, economically, racially, on a familial level. And of course, no surprise, what I found is that the fathers that were represented, the place in which they could exercise the most power was in the family. Right. And so I was actively looking for representations of fatherhood that didn't necessarily fit a kind of certain mold. And I realized as a result of this process that in this absence or in this very small subset, I was also going to have to write my father into existence. I was going to have to fill that hole, which was very difficult for me because, as I said, this is someone from whom I'm estranged. And you mentioned at the beginning that the book is very personal. It is and it isn't. Mm. I didn't want to in any way pathologize my relationship with my father. It was, again, like there are things about him as an individual that I would never ever discuss and things that he and I would never ever see eye to eye on. But there are also things that he gave me that Mm -hmm. helped to that helped me to see the world the way that I do. And I have to acknowledge that. So from my father, my father gave me films and my mother gave me books. Okay. In the way that she could. So there were instances where it was a really special treat, but she would break up the monotony of the summer by taking me to work with her. Sure. By this time she was working in a different bank, but two blocks away from the bank was a library. So she would take me and drop me off at the library And there I would stay until she came and had lunch with me. and But I was free to roam the library. And the librarians, again, different time.
1: Different time. Different community. someone who was raised by a public librarian and spent many a summer day just hanging at the library, I understand what you mean. Right. But the freedom to just take any book off the shelf
0: and just sit. And to this day, I still have that habit where— I go to the library and there's a book that I'm looking for, but then I take all the other book's friends that are around it off the shelf and there we are on the floor (laughs) in the library. I want
1: to pause for a second because I just want to say that this is something I think is really important, and I often talk about it with my undergrads, but I think it's even more powerful because, let's be honest, you're a full professor of English at the University of Texas. So this idea of understanding that you can pull through bits of your life that matter to you and bring them into this space of your work of this intellectual endeavor and build something with it the idea that you would have to leave your experiences growing up in houston to some other place that is not the university to me i think that's really powerful yeah
0: and i think that's for me the appeal of slow research so slow research is the frame for the book. It's a daughter's slow approach. I'm the one who is approaching slowly, yes. but slow doesn't necessarily have to do with temporality or rate of speed. So slow research is derived in large part from the slow food movement, which was started in Italy and this idea of where does food come from how has it grown? Is it sustainable? Mm-hmm. Is it ethical? Asking questions about what it is that we put in our body and how that affects us. And it may seem odd, like, how do you connect brown fatherhood and like the slow food movement? There are an, a series of critical conversations that have emerged from the slow food movement. And so slow parenting, what Mm -hmm. does that mean? Slow education, slow teaching, slow theater, slow film, right? There's all of these. And most recently, the president of the American Historical Association, her presidential address was on slow history. So there's all of these ideas about slowness. And for me, all of the reading that I was doing around slowness, it's first of all, it's still very new in some ways, but it depends on where you look, and I'll get to that right. in a minute. But in all the things I was reading about slowness, I read an article on slow theater, very short article, Lisa Schlesinger, and a friend of mine said, I know you're working on slowness, check this out. So I was still thinking about, what can I do with all of this? And I to me, the frame of the book still hadn't emerged. Yeah. And... That slow theater piece begins and ends with the potentiality of baking bread. (laughs) And I thought, this is just very strange. (laughs) What does any of this have to do? What does this have to do with theater? It has everything and nothing to do with theater in the sense that she's talking about making bread as a way of feeding a group of people that she cares about. And you can make the bread over and over again and every time it's going to come out different. Right. But there's so much potential in that making because right. you're bringing people together. It's about thinking about the process. What did I do? Did I do something differently? Right, right. Did I rise differently? Did I use a different starter? What all of these ideas. Absolutely. yes. But it's about where did it come from? How is it made? Again, those ideas that are tied to the slow food movement. But ultimately, what Schlesinger has us think about is
1: what do we most need? What do we need that doesn't exist and how can we make it? And that's a really powerful statement, not just as an individual thinking about like living in the world and trying to get through, but from an academic scholarly perspective, right? As for myself, as a woman of color scholar recently, not that recently, but recently tenured, right? Thinking about how to survive in this place, how to do work that you're proud of, work that you can say is thoughtful and critical and mindful of all manner of community and social tenets that you'd like to keep in mind. And then not necessarily feeling like there's getting to this idea of pace, right? That there's always time for that kind of work or that kind of work is always valued. So I wonder if you might poke a little bit and let us in on this idea of why isn't everyone trying to do slow scholarship? Yeah. So for me, it wasn't
0: just about, again, all of the different approaches that I read and the different kind of thinking around slowness didn't quite—it wasn't quite what I needed. So if Schlesinger is telling us to think about what we need—and there were some useful things in slow foods and slow methodologies. So I thought, okay, what if I take the central ideas to slow food and I apply them to my scholarship? If I apply them to this question of— Like, where does it come from? First idea, where does it come from? It comes from a very personal place. My research and most research doesn't just manifest. (laughs) Absolutely. It comes from a place. However, in the academy, where that comes from is not necessarily as important or important at all as the output. Absolutely. And there was a complete disconnect between where does it come from? We don't care where it came from. We want to know that it's
1: out in the world and people are citing it.
0: Absolutely. So that to me became an important tenet, which is why the personal narrative exists in each of the three sections.
1: Explain to us how your book is a little bit different in terms of form, because one thing that I noticed right away, and even when you and I have been able to speak about your goals for what the book was going to be and how it might look, is that you have your book divided into these sections that within those sections, there's three factors in each section. And one of those is a personal narrative. and. I've never seen that kind of writing except in what people might call like experimental ethnography where ethnographers working in the field are bringing in field notes, field narratives in between spaces as a way, right, of sharing authorial position. But you introduce personal narratives in each of the units that you offer. Talk to us about this, like the genre that you're working in because this doesn't look like a typical cultural studies, literary criticism kind of text.
0: Yeah, so that goes back to the exact question... That you asked previously and, you know, what I was saying, where does it come from? My father gave me film. My mother gave me books. What I realized in looking at that central, that first question, where does it come from? Where does my work come from? I write primarily about literature. I write primarily about film. Even when I'm writing about folklore, I'm writing to some extent about literature. I'm writing about film. Absolutely. And so where did those things come from? And so to really dig down and look at the source of that information, I had to turn back and say, okay, how did my parents mm. give me mm-hmm. this? The my mother taking me to the library and telling me, or not telling me, I should say, that any books were off limits. Different moment. Yeah. Different way. Yeah. Right? But she never said, don't go look at these books, don't go look at but she also didn't say do it. Yeah. She <laughs> left it open to your exploration Absolutely. and curiosity. Absolutely. In other words, no knowledge was forbidden. That's a gift. It is a gift. And so don't talk to me about it. <laughs> There's boundaries. <laughs> you can learn and like, you can put all that in your head, but please don't come and talk to me about any of this. Like some of these things I don't want to know about. I don't want to know what you know.
1: I'm just going to assume that you've had access to them and that you... But just to pause, luckily, I mean, for all our listeners, I had the privilege of meeting your mother and spending time with her while she was still with us. She was your quinceañera.
0: My, ethnog- my ethnog- ethnography. Ethnog- ethnog- b- buddy, yeah.
1: Now we're getting not talking about personal narratives, right, into this. But Tati, as she was lovingly called, right, Tati, she knew that you needed to know. She under it's like very much forward thinking. And maybe your next book is on motherhood, right? Forward thinking, yeah, you know, understanding like to be to in be in the world, to be functional, to be competitive. She understood that the that knowledge had to be at your fingertips and you couldn't be limited. And maybe she's directly responding to her own experiences of access to lack of access. One hundred
0: percent. Because as the oldest in the second set of siblings in her yeah. family. She was mother, especially after her own mother died, to – very young. She was mother to her younger siblings. Yeah. And that – and even when – her narrative is incredibly complicated, but even when she went to live with my grandparents, who are actually my great-grandparents, but again, a story Have for a another story. day. Um, That's a totally different podcast, people, in case <laughs> you're wondering. It was still her responsibility to look after them, and she did. Sure. And so there were so many things that she – wanted and couldn't have and so she just wanted me to have choices and she just wanted me to have choices in her mind to have choices you had to have knowledge you had to have education so she was a
1: fabulous woman
0: wasn't she she was pretty (laughs) amazing she was pretty amazing but she was also a mother and she was also a latina mother and all that comes with that. So sure. I'm just going to put that in there. No, for sure,
1: for sure. Again, um, another podcast. Another podcast. But let's swing back to fathers because I want us to think I'd love to understand a little more about this the personal narrative that you were referencing, this idea of in writing yourself into these. So again, this idea of where does it come from? And my
0: mother gave me books and my father gave me film. And when I say my father gave me film, again, Same kind of thing with the library. When Cable arrived at our doorstep, that was a game changer. Because otherwise, I was just watching whatever was coming on in the Million Dollar Movie, which came (laughs) on after General Hospital at 3 o'clock. And I would watch schlocky movies. And they were fantastic. That was a huge part of my education, too. And I'm super grateful for the Sinbad and the stop motion and all of those sorts of... Horrible third tier moves, B, But B, again, C, not D.
1: filtering your knowledge. Right? Not you filtering my knowledge.
0: And then, like, cable, like, movie channel and show, oh Like, goodness, that yeah. was crazy. And it, just the amount of information coming at me. Um, but it was a way to keep me at the house. That's right.
1: We're going full scale back to Latchkey Kid. Back you to know, Latchkey Kid. This right, absolutely. Yes. If I'm going to be there, at least, you know. I have, have something, something to do. I'll have something Keep to do, yeah.
0: but for me, the game changer was when Star Wars came out—the first film, huge phenomenon, cultural phenomenon. It's so bizarre to think that I got to see that, like at its at the beginning, like of all where we are now. The and, like, original, absolutely right, yeah. right. Think, but that's hugely important. I hope to, that there's enough time for me to to at least make this point. But like to go from the all white world of Star Wars to the Mandalorian. Oh yeah, that where you have this, like, amazing brown father. But, again, but my father and I were the ones in the family who were absolutely captured by the magic of that film. We stayed, we stood in line all day long for a midnight showing with my brother and my mother. By the time we got into the theater, my mother fell asleep. <laughs> and my brother liked it, and he was, it was fine, but there were things that he would rather have been doing. doing uh, yeah. But that was a moment where, whatever that was, whatever we were experiencing, we certainly couldn't put a, put it into words at the time. Like it solidified something between me and my father, so that we waited together for *The Empire Strikes Back* to come out, and it came out at the beginning of the summer. And I wanted to go, and I wanted to go, right. and I wanted to go. And I was like, I didn't quite understand why we weren't going to see it, and. Part of it, I thought, had to do with like patience. Another mm-hmm. part of it had to do with maybe maybe we couldn't afford it. Or yeah. you, you again, there are things you didn't talk about, so right. I didn't know why we weren't going. So that when we finally went, when we saw the film, and again, this is I document this in the book. My father had planned ahead and he had checked out from work a micro cassette recorder, which at the time would have been an incredibly expensive piece of equipment and i i saw him pull it from his pocket he set it on his knee and i didn't know what was going on but what he was doing is he recorded the soundtrack he recorded the audio from the film so that we can listen to it again i love it and so as a result of that i mean he only had the audio cassette for just the weekend because he had to check it back in but we learned to listen to sound cues we learned to analyze dialogue. What do you think when Luke said, does this? Or like when Vader says, sorry, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> no, I'm your father. Do you think he's lying? Or yeah. So we began to close read. We didn't know that's what we were doing, but we were teaching ourselves to ourselves how to read film, sound, music, yeah. swells of music. And so my father and I were both students of film we learn side by side and so that's where that interest that like that spark that spark yeah, yeah that spark came from and so when I was thinking about the organization of this book I always literature whether I'm writing about literature it usually starts with an idea in film if I'm writing about film It can start with an idea about film, but it often starts with an idea about literature. This is how my brain works. I'm constantly moving between literature and film. Or if I get stuck when I'm writing something about literature, I turn to film to help me work through it. So they're always in dialogue. And there were – in early stages, people were saying things like, maybe you should just write a book about literature, fatherhood and literature. Mm, Fatherhood. Maybe. Right. Maybe you should write it just about film. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And so there was a lot of vacillation back and forth. It took me forever to produce this book. But if I go back to the central idea of where does it come from and how is it made, which is the second idea, right? How, like, where does it come from? What are the physical conditions? How is it made? This book is a representation of how scholarship, how my thinking, how knowledge production gets made. It gets made through dialogue. It gets made through the dialogue of literature and film, and there's always a personal element to that, and you cannot extract that.
1: So that, I think, is a huge point, and I want us to think about that, this idea of the centrality of relational identities, relational experiences, right? At the heart of pretty much all research is just... Some people are very transparent in the process and some folks aren't, right? And that's a disciplinary question. There's all sorts of politics around that, which we're not going to really be able to get into today. But I end on this place where I want you to think back to when you first started working on this book or first started imagining it. Because I actually remember, and Dowie and I have been friends for a few years now, sitting at the Starbucks on William Cannon and Mopac. And I was still working, I'm still trying to finish my book. (laughs) <laughs> trying to get trying to still so my third fourth year on the tenure track and you were working on a book I don't know if it was this book necessarily but what eventually would become this book and I remember you sitting next to me going like I think I'm gonna have to talk about my dad because you were talking about sitting in a car and talking about Star Wars and I was like cool that sounds interesting but like having no idea what do you think changed from that point where like, I, I think this is going to be something different, but I'm not sure what, to now holding the book in your hand?
0: Yeah. In other words, are you asking what changed about why I made the decision to write about my father? Sure. The way, yeah. That's a tough question. But it does go back to that idea of what did you most need and what didn't you have? And I needed to see men like my father. And that was incredibly important for me again i didn't know how important it would be and again going back to that idea of the mandalorian and you have pedro pascal oh yeah he's the father to right. this his surrogate son for those of you who don't watch the mandalorian
1: watch it that's what you saying watch, and it. watch <laughs> it
0: he's from a people who have a central code which is, this is the way. And in many ways, it's a military family.
1: Right, for right? sure. This is the
0: yeah. way you do things, and yeah. hence, this is the way. Yeah. And part of that code is that you never take off your helmet in the presence of anyone. You just don't take it off. And it, Mando takes it off twice. Once when he thinks he's dying, so it doesn't matter. And the second time, he makes a very conscious choice so that his surrogate son can touch his father's face. Yes. And that moment is so incredibly powerful because here is a figure who's a hero. There's a whole show that's built around him. Here's somebody who sets aside this code because he says, this relationship with my child is more important. And that code and that he lives by, that's his family. And he sets yeah. aside. he sets all of that aside, right? And there's a whole generation of kids, kids like me. And kids not like me who get to see this caring father who nurtures, who's, you know, stoic, but also incredibly like funny in his own way and like tender. And those are things that I never, ever had. But I knew they existed because those were elements of my father for all of his many problems. I had a really great father. My brother had the same father and his experience was
1: completely different. This becomes very much a personal narrative in and of itself, right? It does.
0: It does. And so if you're looking for something that doesn't exist, you have to write it into existence, even if you're going to critique it.
1: Absolutely. And Domino, on that note, we are out of time.
0: Fantastic. Thank Thank you you. so
1: much for coming on Latin Experts. And a reminder again to our folks listening the book is Fatherhood in the Borderlands, A Daughter's Slow Approach by full professor, uh, (laughs) Domino Rene Perez. You can find it at UT Press. You can find it on, don't go to Amazon, but you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your small bookstore. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing the spark with you and your dad in text for all of us. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Hi, all.
0: This is Ashley Nava Monteros, the Communications Associate at Latino Studies. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to check out the Latino Studies Instagram
1: page. Follow us at latinostudiesut Studies UT to keep the conversation going.